Anna here from the Artsy Engineering Radio. This is a two-part episode with Artsy's former Chief Technology Officer, Daniel Dubrovkin, or DB. I hope you enjoy part one, and we'll be back next week with part two. Hi, I'm Anna, a software engineer at Artsy, and welcome to the Artsy Engineering Radio. Uh, This episode is a pretty big treat for me because today we're bringing back Artsy's former CTO, Daniel Dubrovkin, or DB as we call him. Uh, DB joined Artsy in 2011 before Artsy launched to the world and served as chief technology officer until around mid-2019 when he left to join Amazon Web Services as a principal engineer. Um, I had the privilege of working uh, really closely with DB uh, in my former role at Artsy when I worked on the communications team before I moved over to the engineering team. Um, So needless to say, I'm pretty excited about this conversation. So DB, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. And uh, I remember you doing a tremendous job, uh, basically running all of Artsy's comms for quite some time. And I'm sure you're doing as well or better as an engineer. Very proud of the work you've done since. Oh, thank you for saying that. And definitely a huge influence to me over the last four to five years of my career. Um, so yes, I'm excited to dive into this conversation with you. Uh, and to kick us off, I'd love to get a little taste of the origin story. Um, so where you were in life when you joined Artsy, how you got connected with the company, and a little uh, sort of taste of what Artsy was like in the early days. Of course. This was 2010. I was working for a quote-unquote boring database security company. It was in the space of uh, compliance, all the fun stuff like PCI, HIPAA, SOX. I worked with like every three-letter agency in the United States. And uh, I was excited about uh, the upcoming startup scene in New York. This is 2010. Uh, I started hearing about all these startups, and a friend of mine, uh, Jan David, who I worked with at Microsoft many, many years prior, called me one day and said, hey, you should meet this Carta guy who is uh, starting a company called Artsy. It's art.sy, and uh, it will be right up your alley because I know you've been thinking about maybe going to work for a startup, maybe doing something else, and... Um, it's an art company, and you've been making art all your life. I think it could be a great fit. Uh, you should note that Jan David Yanda, as I call him, and I uh, made a magazine in Seattle, an online magazine, a long, long time ago uh, called uh, The Orange Bitch. <laughs> I love it's, it. Uh, it we're, we're explicit over <laughs> here. <laughs> yes. Are you bleeping these? Or not? I don't think we're going to bleep, but we well, we do a little warning. So so all good to, to keep it explicit. Yeah, at some warnings. It was uh, Seattle source for random shit. And it was literally a blog with photos of us going out into bars and taking pictures of things happening around. It was really fun. So uh, I went and uh, I, I emailed. He made an intro. I met with Carter. Carter was, I think, 23 at the time. And he had these grand ideas about what he was going to do. And he had some interesting partners. And 
uh, an office space that was a general assembly. And I walked into general assembly, which was the first co-working space in New York for really cool startups. And there were 30 or something companies. Everyone was energetic and fun. And I went to a happy hour that GA was organizing. And it was such a contrast with uh, the off- the gray office cubicle space in which I was living in Midtown Manhattan working on database security that I just wanted to go there. And so Carter had a prototype that was already built and didn't know what to do with it. So he asked me to take a look at the prototype and uh, asked me what I would do. And so I said, well, you know, you have really two choices. You can rewrite the whole thing or you can... Uh, just keep the same thing and make it work because it wasn't really working. And uh, the, the problem of this, this our genome search was really a challenging, interesting uh, problem. And so I said, well, you know, I would, if it's just me, I guess I would rewrite it because why would I inherit somebody else's work? And if I was you, I would probably keep it and make it work. So he said, how about uh, we do something to like why want to try and come and help me rewrite this uh this thing from scratch and i have like a new engineer and maybe they can help as well and i thought in my head i just want to go to general assembly every day uh it's such a cool space so i started we we had a handshake agreement i started coming for an hour a day and then within a week i was basically spending my entire day at ga and after three weeks, I got totally sucked in into artsy and I wanted a full-time job. So I joined in March 2011, officially after having worked on this project as a side project uh, for a few, a, f- a couple of months. Uh, I joined as head of engineering and uh, my daughter was born three days later. Oh, uh, this oh my was my God. second kid. So that's my origin story. I did not realize she was born. Like I was actually wondering this, knowing the age of your kids, how that kind of like fit into the early days. Yeah, I officially started at Artsy March 1st, and she was born on March 4th. That is crazy. So Artsy was sort of born with my second child, or vice versa. Artsy, your third child. Um, How many engineers were on the team at that time? We had uh, three, I believe. There was Craig, uh, Gib, and uh, Sebastian, who was a a contractor uh, working out of uh, Medellin. So uh, I think that was it. Small, small, but mighty. Um, and then, so I joined Artsy sort of in early 2016. And like I said, I wasn't on product and engineering. I was on a sort of bit more business related team. And it was really clear to me early on that Artsy had this really special engineering culture. And I think Artsy has a lot for a long time been known for this and you started the company really early, and I know we're super, was very critical in building that. And at a time when like you really didn't have much, you didn't have much of a team. There wasn't much of a business. Artsy was really like not quite yet a company yet. How did you think about building an engineering culture from basically from scratch? So the existing engineers at Artsy, Craig, yeah, they were quite peculiar. Uh, And I think Craig has a background in philosophy and uh, learned to code by himself. Uh, And um, I was, I I just asked them what they wanted to do. Uh, And as more people came in, tried to create something in which, where I would really have um, 
fun. And at the same time, we could build really good working software. So the bar that I set for the engineering team was very much, we, we, we're not going to build something that doesn't work. We're going to build something that people love. And that became the North Star, build a product that people love. With the attention to design, the ideas behind Artsy, the uniqueness of the product, we all agreed as an organization, not just engineering, that we will build something that will be similar to how Apple thinks about the product. Build something that people truly love. And so working backwards from that idea, uh, one of the principles that I really uh, enjoyed and pushed for very hard in my previous jobs was uh, ideas of openness, ideas of building software in a collaborative fashion with other people who don't necessarily work at the company. Uh, open source is the immediate manifestation of that. So I tried to bring this very early. And I think the in the first few months, I just asked uh, Carter, like, what do you think if we open source this project? Like one of the things that we're building. And he said, I don't know. Sounds, why not? What are the, he asked me why, what are the, uh, what are the advantages of keeping things open? Uh, and what are the advantages of keeping things closed? I think he only actually asked what are the advantages of keeping things closed. And so that became the principle under which we work. Uh, let's just keep things open and then ask ourselves, is something worth being closed? Like, is there some special IP? some magical our genome search, but then everything else we just defaulted to open. So that became the culture of the engineering team that also became the culture of the company from the very beginning. And Artsy was open source by default for the remaining years. So it came very naturally and we just didn't see another way of working. We tried to be very pragmatic and, uh, and incremental like that. Did you have experience in open source before you decided to sort of bring that to Artsy? I had a lot of interesting uh, positive and negative experiences as I would describe them swimming upstream with open source. So in uh, 2010, I think I published an article on opensource.com about bringing the culture of open source into a database security company. It took me three years to open source some really interesting tech that uh, was unique and at the same time not a competitive advantage for the company. It was just useful for everybody. Very, very specifically, it was a project called Waffle that allowed Windows authentication uh, for uh, Java applications. And it's SSO, single sign-on on Windows for Java applications. So the company was using that, and we wrote, we wrote that internally at this company I was working. And we just thought we should just share it with others because there's tons of useful things here and it getting complicated and we need help as well. So it took me years to get approval from a CEO. And actually I went through three CEOs having to convince them that we should be doing any kind of open source uh, in the company. So lots of things have changed, but this was one thing that the company didn't want to do. And eventually I managed to convince them and we did it and then nothing happened. And it was great. And this project is still very much alive. So that was my practical open source experience until then. Uh, before then, I worked at Microsoft and had experience with shared source software, so internally open inside Microsoft with lots and lots of contributors. I had a pet project that was uh, being worked on that I ended up getting funded uh, as it was extremely useful inside of Microsoft. And then there, were, there, was a pro there was something called Wix Windows Installer XML that was debated to be open sourced for the first time inside Microsoft, and I was sort of part of that. So I saw what it could do 
but I was quite unsuccessful in making it work. And so finally, I got my hands on this company called Artsy, and I could actually make those calls. So I just did. I love it. And you, yeah, you were really empowered to kind of like drive that. And also, it sounds like Carter, Carter Cleveland, our, our founder and former CEO, really gave you the reins to make those decisions. You have to admire Carter for the ability to see the future far out and let people make decisions uh, that are compatible with that long-term vision. So he, he was very good at both helping and being involved in software development, but at the same time, not being in the way of it. I think the things he, he has a background as a software engineer, but he never really uh, has written any production code at Artsy. So uh, he knew at which point he needed to let others make decide and, it, and what were the important things at, the, at that time for the company. I mean, at that time, Artsy had like two months of runway. So he had many more important things to worry about, such as fundraising, hiring, uh, convincing billionaires that art can be bought online one day, all kinds of things like that that we now can take for granted. So whether we were open source by default or not was not his concern. He, had, he never needed to quite approve it, really. He just said, it's none of my business. It's, it's your team. Do what you want. And you, need, you should go off and do your thing. And I trust you. Exactly. And that's, that's key in the CEO. I do feel like with open source, you can definitely feel that, could feel that energy at the company, like you said, both on engineering and on business teams of this like open, collaborative, um, that, that's definitely like a big part of the culture. But how else do you think that being open source by default shaped the engineering culture? Because, you know, I I, we, I know that Artsy has sort of these 10 engineering principles that I sort of think about as values for that part of the company. And open source by default is one of them. And I do feel like there, it's hard to really articulate, but there's this sort of magic to the team and um, the way that it seems like it was built and um, the way that people work together and this level of excitement. How do you think that open source helped sort of drive those other factors that made the team so special? I think it's not fair to just think of Artsy Engineering as the open team at Artsy. You pointed out that it's felt elsewhere. The, the story there is that we, on year four, I think, we did an offsite about Artsy values. And uh, I am a skeptical Russian. So when somebody uh, says, oh, we're going to do an offsite upstate New York and talk about company values, I roll my eyes. And uh, I came out of that experience uh, doing a complete uh, 180 on that idea. I loved it. I thought that it was extremely successful. What we did was just write what makes us successful. And one of the things that uh, came up was openness. And we wanted to be open, not in just software, but also for the art world. If you think of the art world, it's like one of the most closed environments, one of the most closed businesses. Nobody knows what's going on behind the closed doors at the major galleries and auction houses and institutions. So Artsy wanted to be different, and openness became a value for the entire company. In engineering, it manifests itself as open source by default in our communication, in writing blog posts, in working more in public. Now, 
I am not, uh, I, I don't really care about sharing code and working in public uh, for the benefits of humanity or society. That's not how I feel about it. I just think it's a better way to build software and it's cheaper. Because if you start with access to experts, like Artsy was a five people engineering team, 10 people engineering team, but there are experts out there. There are thousands of them. When I worked at a company like Microsoft, or now that I worked at AWS, I can look up a directory and find an expert in like machine learning, in AI, in, you name it, in, in launching satellites to space. And I can go and sit down with that person virtually today and discuss, okay, I'm trying to put a satellite together. Like how, do I make, how do I make a satellite? How do I launch it into space? And I'll find somebody who can like tell me from A to Z how to do that. But when you work at a company like Artsy and you have just a handful of engineers, you don't have that luxury. You don't have satellite launching specialists working for the company. So you have to find access to these people elsewhere. And I've always uh, thought that we could do it very successfully through open source. And that's exactly what we did. When we started building uh, an isomorphic JavaScript website, the, the experts that we found were at Airbnb, and we collaborated with them very early on how to make that technology work. So it worked. And uh, without it, we wouldn't have a working isomorphic JavaScript website, and our user experience would have been worse. So uh, it's just a better way of working. It's a cheaper way of producing software. It also raises the bar in terms of quality. If I'm putting my name on something that's in public, I'm going to write those unit <laughs> tests. Yeah, yeah. It really pushes you to... to... When you know something is going to be out there in front of a lot of people, it definitely pushes you to keep the quality high. And I know open source, too, has been a, an important uh, tool that has powered our recruiting. I mean, another thing that struck me immediately coming into the company um, when I did was the quality of engineer and the quality of candidate that we were able to bring in the door. And it sounds like, again, very early on before the company was... Um, was really much of a company. And something that's always struck me is I think Carter and you standing out as these really incredible recruiters. Uh, so how do kind of open source play into that? And, and maybe how do you think about recruiting in general, especially in those early days when you don't quite have much to show for um, the work you're doing just yet? And you have not much to show in terms of paying people. You have not much to show in terms of benefits. And we have a beautiful office space with a happy hour, but that is not enough to recruit engineers today. Or it wasn't enough to recruit engineers then either. So open source was really the mechanism that enabled us to hire people. In fact, we didn't reach out to people. People reached out to us. So why does that happen? Uh, it's very simple. I want to work with really smart people who I look up to, who I admire, and who I think are really strong engineers. Engineers just love working with other really smart engineers. And how do you know that those people are smart and capable? You look at their work. If the work is in the open, you can just look at their work and you can see what they're doing. Today, also, engineers like to make a name for themselves. They want to uh, connect their work with, um, with their name. And that's much easier to do in the open than if you go work for a company that's completely closed and then you just disappear from the, from the world for a very long time. So we attracted the kinds of people that enjoyed working in the open that collaborated with us on open source project or projects, or that just looked at the way we worked. So people came and they read our GitHub issues and pull requests. And they're like, oh, I want to be part of this team. This looks like a really healthy, uh, organized uh, environment. 
and with a lot of smart people. Like, don't take our word for it. Just look at our work and look at our code. So that's why we started attracting a very particular kind of, uh, of engineers, the ones who wanted to work in the open. Now, we also attracted engineers who didn't want to work in the open at all. For example, uh, one of the first engineers that I brought into the team was, uh, was Aaron Windsor, who wrote a lot of the first uh, genome search. Uh, he's a mathematician and uh, a, a PhD in math, actually. And he, I worked with him uh, in, at the previous few previous years at the database security company. And he doesn't have a social media profile. Like he doesn't exist on the internet at all, or almost at all. And he was excited about the uh, technical challenge that I had in the company, uh, but and he couldn't care less about working in the open. So I think it's not true that Artsy only attracted the open source kind of engineer, but uh, in thinking of a team that's very diverse and that has all kinds of people, philosophers and computer scientists, the kind of team that you really want to work on that's really interesting, lots of interesting people, a lot of them just came through this open source work. So it's one of the things I, that was useful. I wouldn't say it's the only one. There are many other advantages of being an, an engineer at Artsy. Uh, the subject matter uh, the the fact that you may be a, an artist already and also a software engineer, those those two functions are very close to each other. And uh, we attracted that kind of people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, something that I love about the team at Artsy is that a vast majority of the engineers ha also have a creative practice, whether it's art or music on the side. That's super common, I think, just because the company attracts people like that. And there's just not that many companies that are in this industry or in creative industries that are also that are really technology first companies. Um, so yeah, I could imagine that that's sort of a competitive advantage with recruiting, but for you, like how do, how does a conversation like that go early on with someone who is maybe not so excited about open source and like you're selling them a company that like can't pay them that much and like doesn't really yet have maybe super strong numbers or, um, you know, it's only, you know, 30 people in total. How does that conversation with someone go? First of all, most people would come to Artsy. So they already made up their mind before they even contacted us that this is one of the companies that I'm interested in working for. Um, they usually came through a network of people. Very few applied cold, although some did. And those who applied cold would look at our work in public to make up their mind that they wanted to work there. Like I remember Ashkan uh, came to uh, to Artsy and I just take I, I sat down for coffee with him and uh, asked him a bunch of questions and uh, I said like what what did you what did you build before and he was working at uh, Makerspace which is uh, a company that has uh, that does storage and uh, uh, they bring you a box you put stuff in a box and they take the box away so you don't have to go and put things in storage the storage comes to you but my, the conversation would be okay Ashkan like, what did you build then it's like oh you know I built this storage algorithm and then the routing for the trucks and then the website and then the mobile app and I was basic I was like how many engineers does MakeSpace have and he's like well it's just me so uh, I was like yes you make things uh, no pun intended I want you in the team so I made up my mind very quickly he also had this like crazy uh, hairdo and, and played um, uh, musical instruments, which, by the way, he's he's incredibly, uh, incredibly good at this. You can find him online. So he's an artist slash engineer. He belongs at Artsy. 
And he clearly can make stuff happen and he can build software because I've used the product and I think the product is excellent. So that's it. I think that conversation was, uh, was positive on both sides. He realized that he's talking to someone a little bit like him at least and that we're still serious people and where we have a business. He asked questions. I didn't sell him. I just helped him fall in love with Artsy. And uh, when it came time to interview, when it came time to making offers, like it's not true that Artsy paid less. Artsy, especially for in the in the engineering space, we've always paid attention to being competitive with other startups. We're just not competitive with you know the Amazons or the Facebooks of the world. That's not the same business. We had a really good framework for uh, compensation, so uh, people were compensated uh, fairly. And I've always looked out for engineers in terms of compensation. So. The offers are competitive. The team is amazing. The product is something you love. Like, why wouldn't you go work at Artsy? Very few declined our offers uh, in the end. How did you How did you see sort of as you were building that culture and as the team was growing, you, you were bringing on all of these amazing engineers. How did you see that kind of scaling once, you know, Artsy moved beyond like a critical mass and was able to like put up more impressive numbers and grow and, and prove some business success. How did, how did the, how did you think about scaling the engineering team and, and specifically the culture? So internally, the team would scale traditionally. We would promote people to become tech leads, would give them ownership of different areas, would give them uh, other engineers to work with and give them titles and all that kind of stuff that a normal engineering team would do. In terms of culture, uh, I learned very from other people many years ago that you can't just sprinkle culture on top of a team. It just has to emerge from the team. The culture of openness emerged from the artsy engineering team and then was contagious throughout the whole company. We tried to put it in principles and we tried to make it work that way everywhere where we could. So many more engineers at Artsy became advocates for that, for those ideas. And they would consistently say the same things uh, as they started hiring people into the company. So uh, I didn't need to control the evolution of that at all. It became scalable by itself. It became viral in sort of ways in the company. And and other people found different ways of uh, applying the principles of openness. Some people decided to write. Some people decided to do a podcast, like here we are. So these are these are ways of, of working. And it's a, it scales naturally because people have a clear set of values that they just need to remember to think about and use those values and refer to those values when they make decisions. So when it comes to engineering decisions, you need to decide whether you're going to do some, certain thing in one way or a certain thing in another way. Just pick, uh, pick, make a choice and make sure it's consistent with those values. Uh, and look yourself in the mirror and say, like, yes, this is this is going to work. This is consistent with the company values. This benefits my users. This is moving the puck forward. This is advancing the business, and so on and so forth. So there's no magic bullet to scaling it, except continuing to empower people to change it in ways that they want to change it themselves. Do you feel like you kind of took that note from Carter and the way that he was leading around empowering the people under him? Is that sort of how you think about about what makes it a great CTO? I don't know. I think uh, mostly the, the rule of thumb that I've always used is that my job is to enable people to do their best work. I never thought of 
say, directors in engineering as people working for me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the boss and uh, I decide when they get a raise and I can decide when they, uh, their title changes, but I really can't decide what they do. I can only help them understand what's important and then let them make the decisions about what software to build, how to build it, and so on and so forth. So I'm at their service. And I've always taught my managers to be at the service of others. So I think of this as an inverse pyramid. We, we as managers are overhead. We're just over, we, we, if the team is healthy, they don't need us maybe at all. Uh, they, they, we might need to be the ones breaking some ties and making some decisions. But other than that, uh, we're not producing anything, just overseeing a bunch of humans writing code. Like the people who are the most important are the individual contributors writing the code. So get out of the way and help them write the right code that does the right things so that we can have a healthy business and serve our, uh, our users, our customers. That's it. Uh, there's no other directive from the top. When you say sort of helping engineers or directors or individual contributors make decisions, like how, how much of a role do you, did you see your, um, your position as, as shaping technical decisions, especially like larger technical decisions? I think very quickly I realized that I cannot make the large technical decisions. I made some early ones that were pretty bad and I made some early ones that were pretty good. So at some point, uh, when another engineer owns a particular component or system, uh, then it's it needs to become their decision to make. Now, what's important for a CTO is that uh, the company may be shifting direction, and it's a, it, it was my job to understand where we were going. Like I didn't know what Artsy's business was going to be on day one. I didn't know we were going to have a successful subscription business or a successful auctions business. Uh, I thought maybe we'll make all our money on content. That didn't pan out. So there are many futures that the company can have. And the job of a CTO is to make sure that what we build will be able to enable any of these futures. That's a little bit of a dif difference between the CTO and the VP of engineering. Uh, CTO thinks of strategically, and then the VP of engineering maybe executes. I don't think it's a fair distinction necessarily, but it's simple enough uh, to, uh, to, to just think about if there are two people. And my job has for a very long time at Artsy was to do both. So I would look out for uh, where we were going strategically, and I would look out for what we're delivering right now. Increasingly and very quickly at Artsy, the engineers, the director level engineers were responsible for delivering uh, what we were actually doing now. So they collectively acted as a VP of engineering and didn't need that much coordination between them. They just owned their pieces. Uh, so I, uh, my job was to communicate to them the business, uh, the direction, what's going on in the executive leadership team, and how those things may impact us in the long run. So an example of what I did poorly for is uh, we, 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 started a, uh, we started building the Artsy website, and Artsy website had a CMS to manage it. So, you could put, so galleries can put artworks on the Artsy website. And uh, that wasn't an inventory management system. It was very much a CMS for the website. And then it started being used as an inventory management system. So we never split out the backend into a CMS backend that was for inventory management of you know, my own inventory, and then a website uh, so that I could merge information from various galleries into one single view. So for example, a gallery can have 
an edition of an artwork and another gallery can have an edition of the same artwork. Well, those need to appear as a single web page. It's a classic marketplace problem. And so very early I said, ah, you know, we'll, we'll deal with this later. And we never split the backends into a CMS and into a website. Uh, turns out that was a bad decision and we paid a very uh, unhealthy price for it over the years. And the business actually considered becoming a content management system uh, and couldn't because it would be a very, very large lift from the technology point of view. I'm fascinated by this conversation because I, I, I'm working on uh, the partner experience team at Artsy right now, which is works on the CMS. So um, I'm familiar with like the, the setup and it's interesting to hear that that was like a conversation because having most of Artsy's backend is all in one system. Yeah, it's, it becomes technical debt. And that technical debt every year increases and grows and then starts costing you uh, more and more. And then it's harder and harder to change. So those, that was a very small decision, very, very early, that became a really big deal over the years. So I always, I should have done a probably a better job in articulating where we could go and making, uh, and, and splitting those two up very, very early so that we could uh, evolve quickly in, in the future. So uh, that's the kind of decision I needed to make. But then everything else that we were doing, uh, I think is already, is quickly becoming uh, the job of the tech leads that are actually working in code all day long uh, on uh, partners, partner teams or on the front end of, of iPhone application, you name it. Right? Yeah. So you just said something that you thought you did not so great, although I would kind of push back because Artsy now is, you know, has 40 engineers and things have changed, but there's a lot of systems that clearly scaled. Um, how, what's something that you think you did really well as, as Artsy CTO? I think that one of the things that I'm most proud of in terms of technology is, um, is writing a bidding prototype in the early days when we thought about doing auctions. We, ended, we were sitting around the table discussing whether we can or cannot do uh, a auction system. So going into, into auctions is a pretty big uh, ask. Uh, if you think about it, auctions, they can fail. There's an auction with a human and works are going quickly. So if your system can't keep up and you have bidders online, well, they can't bid. So it's, it's a fly or die kind of system. And we were very scared about anything that was real-time, fly-or-die, that, kind of, uh, uh, that kind of requirements because, you know, we're like web developers. The website is up. You know, it mostly works. Like, why would we want to build anything close to real-time? That seems very difficult. And so when we started discussing this, this bidding situation, uh, there was a lot of pushback on the technology side in terms of uh, should we or should we not even build a thing like that? And um, I got a little bit tired of the conversations uh, at, at, the, uh, at all the levels. And so I just went and wrote uh, a dumb bidding system after reading a couple of white papers and removed all the real-time components out of it. So good things that happened. We were very quickly able to integrate it into our existing uh, infrastructure and do a bunch of charity auctions that were eBay style. So we're not, it was not live bidding. They would end at a particular time. It totally worked. And it was extremely simple. It was not sufficient to build a real-time system. It was sufficient to run these eBay-style auctions. And it was really meaningful for Artsy in its evolution uh, in time. Of course, it was failing at the end of the auction as people were trying to snipe 
on uh, on the bids and trying to place bids last minute and the option could not be extended because that's not how we wanted to run that business uh, and uh, it would like pause for a minute and then eventually all the bids would be placed and the thing people would be like huh what happened there for last minute well that was annoying but nobody got nobody got upset with that and it kicked it kicked off this new sort of modality for engaging on artsy because it's it's it is i i'm remembering now that we did those charity auctions relatively very early on, considering that we didn't really scale that business until maybe 2017-ish. Um, so yeah, it's cool to think. I, I, I know that our first like ever auction was actually like way before that. Yeah, it was 2014 or 2013. And uh, the, what, what I think, if you ask me what I did well, I think the system that I built or helped build until then uh, did foresee the idea that an auction may happen actually on Artsy. Uh, it, was, it is an art world thing. And uh, we always try to build something that mimics the real world and how the real world works. And so we were prepared for the rest of the real world to come. And we could bolt a bidding system uh, on top of the existing uh, models of artwork, sales, and things like that we're already doing, and just incrementally create something that just worked. And, uh, and I love those events. I love the charity auctions and the artists they support and the uh, awesome events that they put up. I mean, like if you go to the Watermill Center for their summer auction, it's such an incredible experience with actors uh, walking around, in, um, walking around the, the fields of, of, of that center in the Hamptons. Uh, it's, it's kind of surreal. And so powering those types of events was super fun. Uh, now, uh, for the anecdote, by the way, speaking of like what, what we did well, what we didn't do well, uh, there were some features uh, in that auction system uh, to make it restartable. Basically, it would only move forward. And those were early design decisions in case something doesn't work. So I think we did really well uh, in the cases where something didn't work. There's a photograph on, uh, I think, PMC Patrick McMullen somewhere, where me and Brennan, an engineer at Artsia, standing, smiling, wearing suits behind two laptops at this uh, public art fund auction. And what's happening on the laptop is that the auction system is dead. It's basically down and it's not working. The alarms are going off. Something's wrong. And we cannot, for the life of us, figure out why something is wrong. But nobody is noticing. They can still place bids. It's just the bidding isn't advancing. And uh, the bids, you can see that bids are coming in, but you don't know what the max, what the winning bid is yet. So the auction system is dead. And I'm like typing, restart, run, and it's failing with some weird error. And I'm looking at the error, like I do not understand what's happening. And then a photographer comes by and he snaps a picture. We smile at the picture. And then I think Brennan types Things are going great. <laughs> and then I think Brennan is, is like, oh, I think I know. Like he types some something on the uh, Ruby console in the production server that's running this thing, uh, modifies some random data, and the thing resumes. And so everything everything is working again. There were other other cases where that didn't quite work. So, for example, there were these bidding screens, and uh, they were super cool, well-designed, and beautiful projections of what's going on at an auction. If you think about the charity auction until then, like nobody, nobody could bid online. Nobody could see what's going on in the auction. People would write these bids on paper. Like our competition was paper. And so you wouldn't, you'd have to go to the work to look at its max price. But here we, we made these projection screens and you could see like a new bid. Uh, and it would say like $100,000 new bid. And people would be like, damn it, I need to beat that. 
I need to go and bid again on my phone so that it can be $150,000. This is my favorite charity. I just want to give them so much money. And, um, and then the, 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 these flashing bids would just stop and the numbers would stop appearing. And we blamed it on the internet like the Wi-Fi a thousand is bad. times. <laughs> We're like, oh, it's just, the Wi-Fi is up. And, and so you'd have to climb to wherever the projector was and attach to a little Mac mini on which the uh, software was running to project the, uh, the these bits and like reboot the thing. And so uh, we would always watch these monitors. Somebody would go and kick the box, uh, as we would say. And then until I think like a year and a half into it, we actually found it was a real bug in the software. Like somebody decided, okay, this can't be just Wi-Fi. I'm going to sit down and try to reproduce it. And like within 15 minutes, they found what the problem was and, and fixed fix the issue. You can probably still find it on GitHub somewhere. Uh, so the, the, what we did well is uh, allow our technology to be, uh, to be rebootable. Like kick the box, restart it, make it work. And think about the user experience. Like you can't fail what people see. That has to still look like nothing's happening. But then you can operate the system in the back end if you need to go and then kick it. Yeah, secretly in your suit in the back of a party, like trying to fix something. I love that. I mean, it definitely makes me think about sort of these moments as engineers that a lot of people, I think if you're not working on technology, like don't quite understand, like you're used to things just working and like, it's just that easy. But what really goes on behind the scenes and the stress of when something fails, especially in real time at an event. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's something about the job that is not often talked about. Yeah, people, I think oftentimes people picture engineers as sort of like behind the scenes, quietly working away, but sometimes that work can be actually quite exciting and and full of full of intense time bound pressure. And scary. So, yeah. <laughs> for, you know, I think I told my team very early, the difference between us and other teams is very, very small. If you look at software, like most software, it doesn't work. And I think it doesn't work for very small reasons. Like you write a mountain of software, it's very complex, and then it just doesn't work. And it's a stupid bug somewhere that makes the whole thing a house of cards. And I said, the difference between us and people who build houses of cards that don't work is tiny, but we are always going to be on the side where it works. And we've, we've done this as a team. We've designed and built software that barely works, but it always works. And so Artsy has this, uh, this reliability and history in things that matter, such as auctions, where 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, things are just extremely reliable. And uh, to, the, to users, they seem extremely reliable. They Things that fail are allowed to fail. And we always had plan B, plan C, and plan D that uh, for every single system that needed to work. And we worked very hard on ensuring, like, what do we do if this doesn't work? We always asked ourselves that question, and we spent time on building that. And the culture of testing and automation was always there from the beginning. Artsy didn't, doesn't have a QA or anything like that. So engineers are, are working without the safety net in production. Uh, so we have to build systems. We have to build systems always that will just work and have backup and ways to recover and uh, be redundant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we spent a lot of time uh, writing tests and ensuring that uh, any kind of bug that was in production was regressed properly and kept those standards very, very high. 
Yeah, and that there's a backup plan. That's really interesting because I've been wondering. I, I joined the company after a few months working somewhere else, and they had a dedicated QA team with QA engineers assigned to each of the product teams. And I remember coming into Artsy when I first joined back um, um, in November, and I was like, we don't QA, like we don't have a QA team. Like that makes me so nervous. But there is this feeling of the it's the way we build software is sort of trying to keep in mind these kinds of. No, knowing that you don't have this fallback, that you like have to have sort of these other sort of you know systems in place, and um, just ideas that uh, you have to have kind of a backup plan. I, I, I here's an anecdote. I think Sebastian, our CEO, is probably like jumping up and down right now in the chair listening to this podcast because many times he was like, "Why don't we have a QA team? Our app doesn't work, or something else." And I'm like, "Our app doesn't work for for many reasons." Uh, our website crashes for many reasons, but the QA team is just not going to fix it. And in fact, it will do the opposite. So we thought about this many, many times and uh, disagreed on it uh, endlessly. And uh, I think in the short term, something like a QA team can definitely help. And I was never quite opposed to having point in time testing, but I also... Uh, we didn't have a lot of money to spend on QA teams and such. Uh, we, we did hire, I think, some agency for a little bit to help us with testing out mobile apps and things uh, of that nature. But mostly I wanted this to become an engineering problem and everybody's problem. Our software bar and quality needs to increase all the time. And uh, the only way I know how to do that is when me, an engineer writing code, knows that I'm responsible for operating that code in production. And that's a wrap on part one with DB. We'll be releasing part two of the episode next week, where DB and I will be talking about his move to AWS, what he's working on there, his love of art, and get a little into the world of NFTs. You can follow along with the Artsy Engineering team at Twitter at Artsy Open Source and on our blog at artsy.github.io. Thank you also to Eve Essex for the theme music that you hear at the beginning and end of this episode. We'll see you next week. Bye.